Why so much grief for me? No man will hurl me down to death against my fate. And fate, no one alive has ever escaped it, neither brave man nor coward. I tell you, it's born with us the day that we are born. Nat, Adil, back for another full house episode of Made You Think, all three of us. It's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah. Been a while. <laughs> the last one was really great. It was. Exodus. I loved listening to it. I was like <laughs> on a run and I was cracking up every few minutes at your jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Is it... I I haven't listened to you and Neil doing Genesis. Is it hard to like listen to it and not be able to jump in with <laughs> your thoughts as we're talking? Well, less so for me because I listened to the first sixty episodes without. Okay, fair. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think tell us, Matt, you'll have to check out Genesis and see. There if we you go. Know. Yeah, yeah, he still hasn't done his homework. I remember for Paul that. said that when he joined for for that episode a few ago he was like this is so much more fun being on because i often have thoughts while i'm listening and now i can just blurt them out <laughs> part of the show. yeah i wonder if we ever had like enough people who wanted to do it if because uh riverside which we're using to record does let you have like a live audience if you want oh uh, i mean they can't like jump in and talk or maybe you can invite people up to talk i don't know but you, they like can Clubhouse definitely chat or yeah, they can definitely like chat and watch live and stuff. So I don't know if we ever have enough people who want to do that and chime in. That fun. would actually be kind of fun. That'd be really cool. Yeah. God, remember Clubhouse? Uh, yeah, that lasted for like <laughs> two months. <laughs> they should have sold the. I mean, they had an offer. They I think. Yeah, four billion. Yeah, they didn't take it. <laughs> oh man, they thought they were Snapchat. They thought they I think, would. Yeah, I think Twitter offered them four billion. Wow. Fact check myself. Somebody offered them a lot of money. I yeah, I don't know. I don't remember who, but someone offered them a lot. Yeah. Okay. So Twitter held discussions for four billion dollar takeover of Clubhouse. So I don't know if there was actually a deal on the table, but it was. They were talking about it. Yeah. Hindsight. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. It sounds easy. Now we're all like, yeah, that was dumb. You should have taken that. I don't even. Are they still around? Do they still exist? I haven't heard of them in so long. I think spaces beat it. I mean, yeah, I basically haven't seen anyone announce a clubhouse in a long time. I, I feel I feel good for Twitter because I feel like they've been looking at Facebook, just copy rising social media and do so. Well. It's like, mm, why can't we do that? And they finally yeah. got one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially Vine, right? It's like Vine was V1 was TikTok. TikTok. Yeah. And now TikTok's like the biggest thing in the world. So they've got to be just like kicking themselves. <laughs> I don't know. Vine was actually pretty good, but I don't know why they shut it down. Like, I think they just well, couldn't get the ad model to work or something. I, I also think that it's one of those common things in tech, right? Like the right idea at the wrong time is still the wrong That's idea. True. Yeah. And I really think the big limiting factor was probably like data storage and deliverability because you couldn't easily watch just a ton of videos on your phone back then. Like the, the data streaming wasn't good enough. You had to be like on your computer. And that's why they were only six second long videos too. It was just like the data warehousing was so expensive and all of this. So like TikTok really couldn't exist until today when right. you have like unlimited cheap storage that you can just let people upload hundreds of hours of videos and not charge them for it. Yeah. And like Instacart is web van basically. But yeah. You know, it's like a different time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like you're totally right. Yeah, the timing matters so much. 
for these things. Yeah, apparently the the issue with most of the like 2000, 2001 tech bubble companies wasn't really the like ideas of the teams or anything. It was that people still weren't comfortable putting their credit cards into websites. Right. So I saw this. I saw this yeah, hilarious they, thing like a couple months ago. I I haven't seen it in a while, but it was basically like. 20 years ago, people scared to put like a credit card into a website and buy something. And it, or it was like tw- 2001, people scared to put a credit card into a website and buy something. 2021, my entire net worth is in a Chrome browser extension. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I, I was writing, I was writing like, one of the chapters on NFTs in the book this morning and just talking about like spending, you know, $10,000 on like pixelated pickles <laughs> with like various sunglasses and like <laughs> tattoos and shit and then selling them for hundreds of dollars each. I was like, it, it's so funny looking back at it. It's like, wow, this was really fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Our ancestors, man, they're like rolling over in their graves. I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, oh man. I, I, I'm tempering this with. I've been listening to the Pioneers by David McCullough. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, I read. I read that a while back. But yeah, you, fantastic, fantastic book. It's about like the the early American settlers who left the 13 colonies and started traveling west, and so it's talking about like you know going into Ohio and it's like 20 people in five families and they chopped down a bunch of trees and build five log cabins with a little communal area and boom, like that's a town. <laughs> this is yep. where you live now. <laughs> yeah. That's what they were doing. Uh, we are buying <laughs> pictures of monkeys. <laughs> Pioneers in our own way. Pioneers. Uh, yeah. Born, born too late to uh, explore the world too early to explore space but yeah. <laughs> just in time to explore <laughs> shitty jpegs on open <laughs> <laughs> Okay, right. so the book we're doing today, Adil, what are you doing? <laughs> this is your job. This is why you're on the show. <laughs> I'm just having fun, man. I, <laughs> I, I like that we, record, we recorded 15 minutes of pre-show banter to get it out of our system so that we could start and be on topic. <laughs> and then we re- recorded another 15 minutes of banter for the actual episode. <laughs> um, and we even did an outline this time. <laughs> yeah, and we, okay, we better yeah, we better get to work, guys. Have we uh we haven't said the title yet. It it's the name of the episode. People know what book it is. If they can't read, what are they doing here? <laughs> I guess you I guess you could have it like in your queue. You could be like on a run or something and you've yeah. you, cute episode comes up. Uh <laughs> run faster, John. Uh and so yeah. <laughs> so we're doing the next episode of our great book series which is the iliad by homer written in what is it 2800 years ago like 8th century bc they yeah i think seven or 800 bc yeah so we've moved forward like what about 500 to a thousand years from where we started (laughs) yeah that's the crazy thing about this book list is uh, I mean, it's sort of like this is obviously true, right? But there are there are more books in a ten year span of the eighteen hundreds or nineteen hundreds than there are books in the like thousand year span between what like negative two thousand or negative fifteen hundred and 
500 or a negative 500. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but it's also like, it's shocking when you look at it that way. Yeah. But it's also just like writing was so much less common at that time too. So it's partially a tech thing. You know, Um, the, the other thing that I'm always curious about too, with a lot of these stories is like, do we still have these because they were the best or are they just the ones that happened to survive? Right. Like what if, what if Homer was actually a like very mediocre, like, like just okay poet in his day. And there are all these other just like super epic stories that, (laughs) but they were like rare collector's items and they all got lost in library Alexandria. And Homer was like the, the James Patterson uh, or something. Yeah. Like the James Patterson or whatever. And just had like really fun, punchy (laughs) stories. And, there just happened to be a lot of copies of them laying around. And so those are the ones that made it, right? Yeah, there's definitely some of that. Like, we don't know. We, we will never know that. If someone uh, wants to write a historical fiction novel about, like, the the Greek poet, like, industry and competitiveness, that would be a very funny premise. That would be a fun, like, yeah. That would be a great <laughs> premise. <laughs> but yeah, but I think, like, I mean, on the other hand, probably I would imagine people went to great great lengths to make sure the story survived too because there are so many if you think about how long of a time frame that is and how hard it was to make a copy like i think we kind of take that trivially now or it's like oh yeah i can just copy it or like it's like it lives in infinite copies online or even pre-internet right it wasn't that hard to like print an additional copy of a book but back in this time like it was nearly i mean it was probably monumental and how many lines are there there's like fifteen thousand lines in this in this uh, story. Yeah, so did not make stick a to the publisher word count. No. <laughs> yeah. The book was surprisingly like I, I had never read it before and it took a while to sort of get into the style of it, but it was surprisingly like, ama- like I really enjoyed it. There were definitely parts where I was like, I'm going to go faster, you know, because this is like kind of redundant. Yeah. yeah. But the plot was, was actually pretty interesting. And then some of the speeches are just so epic. The speeches are the best. Yeah, I love yeah. this. Yeah, I, I was going to say that, and the I fight like scenes, it, some of the fight scenes also. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say it really like ebbed and flowed for me, where there were yeah. parts that were just like so good and so interesting and so fun, where it was like a like an action novel or yes, like uh, a superhero movie or in some parts. Yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. like Independence Day or something, right? It was just like very punchy. Like the lead and up then, to the showdown between Achilles and uh, and Hector, yeah, was like it was, it was like, like this massive like build up to it, yeah, <laughs> so fun, so fun. <laughs> but then you've got you know twenty pages describing like the various ships on the beach, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or uh, yeah, those I sped through, but yeah, yeah, the, like, like building the fortification on the beach is like all right, come on, get on with it. Yeah, <laughs> there are definitely parts that. Uh, but I, I think we, we talked about this in like the Genesis or the Exodus, the Exodus episode one, too, where yeah. it's like there was definitely some element of like using stories to record historical information and stuff too, right? Like because before before Thucydides or Thucydides, I'm not sure which it is, like there was no concept of history like as an activity. Like that, that's why Peloponnesian War is mm. such like a big deal as a book because he was really the first one who said like I'm going to write a history of an event, and before that it was like these are just sort of stories, but you could probably use them as a way to like 
catalog historical data as well. So I think that's why Homer has all these like ship data and stuff in there is because that was that like was history back then. Mm. That's almost like the textbook storing all that information. Yeah, exactly. Like, the, like the, yeah, it's uh, we're was this in the pre? Yeah, we were talking about this in the pre-show about like politics and religion, right? The idea that those would be a separate thing, like is a very new concept, right? Yeah. I think probably back then the idea that history and stories would be separate things was a very new concept. It's funny in, in the intro to Peloponnesian war, Thucydides like makes fun of, makes fun of like Homer and Herodotus because he's like some people telling stories about history, like to embellish details to make them more entertaining for the common <laughs> man. Like, I have set out to tell an accurate version of events. It's like so condescending. It's great. <laughs> what year was that written? Uh, like 450 BC. Okay. I wonder so if like the way they like later. thought about history changed because it was just the victors write whatever history they want. So an accurate history doesn't matter. So Probably. preservation just wasn't a concern. Like even any yeah. preservation in stories may have just been accidental. I believe that. Or because these are entertaining, maybe it was why they were preserved in, in a way, also. I mean, Europe was just so chaotic for so long that an accurate history would have to be embarrassing for every player. So they're <laughs> yeah. not interested in an accurate... I mean, I'm purely speculating here, but yeah. uh, I wonder if just the way we view it has changed. Well, I also know, like, I mean, Nat, we talked about this in way back on my Nat Chat episode. <laughs> I still remember this because you kind of changed my mind on, I, I don't think I agreed with you in the episode, but then I thought more about it. And like over the years, I've definitely come to agree with you. I'm a hundred percent on your camp on this. Like, I think I was talking up like the value of reading about history during that mm. episode. And you were like, yeah, but like how much of that is just like, kind of like the news, like how the media is like telling the story <laughs> and it's just kind of like a self-serving narrative. And like now I 100% agree with you. Like that is basically what history is, I'm sure. It's at least like, more filtered though. Like it's my, a little my, bit more filtered, <clears throat> yes. But yeah. Yeah. But it, I think that that uh as we're reading more of these books, I'm starting to get a bit of what we talked about when we started this where like it'll be fun to read these books from the same era at the same time because they'll mm. probably reference each other. And I really started to get that with Peloponnesian War where mm. he's like calling out Herodotus and Homer and like talking about the stuff that's come before. And now I, I just started Prometheus bound and the like introduction by one of the interpreters talks about like how the Aeschylus stories differ from the Herodotus stories. And it's like cool to see those kinds of like differences and then like use that to create your interpretation of the events. And I feel like that's kind of how you have to do history, right? It's kind of like, like I, I still don't think the news is super valuable because you'd be spending all day watching like five different channels. I, I, I was on a flight recently and the two people in front of me on like either side of the aisle, one was watching CNN for the whole flight back and one was watching Fox for the whole flight back. <laughs> And oh, it was just like they were living in two completely different worlds. I could like see the, I could see the you know the snippet things below the talking heads, and I, I was like, one, how are you doing this for three hours? Like, I I'm feeling anxious just catching glimpses out of the corner of my eye. But they're just like sitting there, you know, pounding drinks, watching the news, and they're just oh, like getting completely different information feeds. That I thought it was super interesting. So, imagine, imagine dating someone and it's going super swell. You on your first trip. 
And then on the flight, that's what that's they do. They, like, <laughs> 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 I'm sometimes oh, jealous of those <laughs> people, like of these people, though, because it's like in some ways the world would be so simple if you could just like turn on the news and be like, "Yeah, I got the news today." Like, dude, that would be terrifying. Are you yeah, it would be terrifying. So it would be terrifying, but there would be very clear sides, right? It would be very clear, like good versus evil. I'm on the good mm. side. You're on the evil side, and like I hate you because you're evil. Like it's just like Neil, very. The world's very like fairy tale. Like in that we're scenario. still we're still on the good side. We just don't watch the news. It's the, I don't it's even the know dis- what the good side is. Like, what is the good side? People who don't watch news. <laughs> yeah, people. That's the, that's true. That's the us versus them divide. There we go. Well, it's like the. And, you know, we're, we're going to actually get into this in one of the first topics from the book now. <laughs> this idea of, like, D- Disneyfication of yeah. good and evil, right? So, like, Disney stories are kind of appealing in the sense that, oh, there's, like, a very clear good guy and a very clear bad guy. And you are on the good side and you're fighting the bad side. And, that, I mean, that's just, like, a generally the wrong way to interpret the world, Right. Like you do occasionally have these crazy like Hitler figures who it's like pretty much everybody is going to objectively agree from the outside that like, yeah, this person's like pretty fucked up. But most conflicts are, you know, it's like different backgrounds and values and like feelings and opinions. And it's like not that same kind of like black and white good versus evil. And I I feel like the Iliad does a very good job of presenting both the mortal conflicts and the immortal conflicts that way, right? It's it's yeah. a really different view of the gods and deities than you get in Genesis and Exodus. Obviously, we read Genesis and Exodus, and then I read the Quran this summer for the first time. And then reading the treatment of uh, the gods in this book gave me a lot of yeah. like we call it like an Abrahamic anxiety. I was just like, man, these are so ungodly. They actually <laughs> exclusively participate in things that uh, the Torah or Quran would call like dreadfully sinful, like the worst sin. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be the realm of the gods. Uh, <laughs> what, like how uh, Zeus and his sister? Not Haram. Like Game of Thrones. This is like a Game of Thrones. Yeah, there's actually a lot of Game of Thrones like similarities to the Greek gods. Oh, is that right? And that whole universe. Yeah, wasn't Hera like his sister? Hera, his sister? I I've never Hera's... seen Game of Thrones, yeah. No, I'm saying Zeus. Zeus and, and Hera Zeus and were Hera, siblings. Because so. Cronus, I think, was both of their fathers. I thought I thought Zeus made Hera from... Didn't he like pull her out of his head or something? Oh, so she's literally him? <laughs> it's like very similar to... Oh, no, I'm wrong. Yeah, Hera was Zeus's... Yeah. Sister? Sister. Yeah. yeah. And wife, right? Sister and wife, yep. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I deal to your point. Like these are all not like things that you would see from a god, let alone a supreme god in like the Abrahamic yeah. religions. I don't remember if this was in the book or if this was in my later reading, but like why Athena and Hera hated Paris. Because there was a beauty contest on Mount Olympus and Paris chose I'm forgetting who, but, but Paris didn't choose Athena or Hera. So like there was a goddess beauty contest where a man <laughs> chose and then they just like 
out of vanity from that event, hated Paris and sided with the Achaeans against the against Troy. I was like, <laughs> Aphrodite. What? Aphrodite, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they're very human, right? I think very is like human. is the point. Is like these gods are not gods in the way that we would think about gods. They're more like they're almost I think this might be in your notes, well one of your notes. They're almost like pieces of your brain in some ways. Like Yeah. It's like, it's like instincts like or feelings out. or yes. And I think it's it's actually interesting. Like I made this note about how they view like the world being so influenced by these imperfect gods is actually a very interesting proxy for how the world works. Cause like many times you get thoughts or urges or whatever that actually you have no idea where they come from. They're just, you just get them. And so do other people. And it's like, why did they do that? Well, it's like actually not that inaccurate to be like, well, Zeus did something to make that happen. It's like, it's just as accurate as how we would say, Oh, he had, he's had a feeling to do that. Or like he had an urge to do that. It's like, what, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. Like what is a what is an urge? Like I mean, yeah, sure, we might say, oh, it comes from like, you know, your psychology in some way, shape, or form. But it's like, if you think about three thousand years ago, or yep. two thousand something years ago when they were uh, telling the story, it's like there's actually probably a pretty good way to describe the world, and it it encapsulates the concepts really well. Like I mean, this one is like the story of rage. Which is like, okay, just remember Achilles instead of remembering like the consequences of rage, which is just doesn't really have the same ring to it as, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, with that, we could talk about rage. Yeah. So, th- I mean, this was actually my first surprise reading the book was that I-, I always thought that Iliad was like the story of Troy. And it's really not because it's just this little snippet of. Yeah all the events that happened at Troy. It's like a 10-year war. And which is kind of wild to think because it's this very small area. And they're just like camped on the beach trying to sack this city for 10 years. That's wild. But this is like towards the end of it. I think it's the eighth or ninth year. And it's really just this whole one conflict really between Achilles and Agamemnon and like Achilles within himself about how angry <laughs> he, he is. The way everything escalates is kind of like crazy in the sense of, uh, you know, they, they have this one bad, like, battle military event. Agamemnon takes Achilles' bride, girlfriend, battle prize, like, sort of, I think, you yeah. know, there's some debate over the extent of their relationship. But then, He's so angry about it that he and the Myrmidons just like leave. Although I guess they don't really leave. They just kind of like go down the beach a little bit. It's it's sort of like funny to imagine, right? It's like, oh, we're going to go camp over there. Now. <laughs> like, we're just, and they, they literally just sit there and like watch everybody else die for a while. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember the exact length of time, but it's like quite a bit. It's a while. Uh, a lot of people are dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're literally just like chilling on the beach eating while like, their friends are over there like slowly getting whittled down like it's pretty fucking sad <laughs> and and that's actually most of the book like the the beginning is pretty exciting and then like the end is pretty exciting and there's a couple of like interesting conflicts in the middle but in terms of this being the stories of Achilles it's like 85% Achilles sitting on the beach pouting uh, <laughs> <laughs> not a good look not a good look. No. 
But it really is this, like, to Adil's point about it's the story of rage, right? And, like, the consequences of it, right? It, you know, not only does he lose his his bride in the beginning, but then he loses his best friend. Uh, and then it seems like arguably most important to Homer is Achilles loses his honor, like, and dignity. Uh, yeah. And... The and, and then it really only comes together and the story ends. And this is really why it's more about like that journey than the battle itself. But it, it comes together at the end with him regaining that honor and dignity and kind of like being able to move on from like his mistakes, his, his, his retribution. He still dies for it, though, which I think is kind of like this interesting element to it, which doesn't happen in the book. It happens later. Uh, like it, it ends with his redemption, but then we, and then Homer kind of like alludes to it, and then we know he dies soon after. Well, that was which, his fate from the beginning, right? Wasn't it that if he fights in this war, he's going to die, but die with his honor? And if he doesn't he, fight, he'll live right. a long, or if he goes home, he'll live like a long life, but he would have lost his honor by doing that. Oh, uh, yeah, I think you're right. It was like a, well, and so that was the allusion to it, but they didn't show him dying. At that yeah. point, when when does the story end? Is it does it end in the Odyssey, or is there like another book in the middle? I was wondering that too. I mean, I I assume like, where's we the whole Trojan to... horse story, like, and all of that. Yeah, I I well, you know, it's alluded to in it's alluded to in the Odyssey. I think I actually was shocked when the book ended. Like, I was just like, I was actually very surprised when the book when it was over. I was like, yeah. wait. I was like, what happened to the other parts of the story? Like Achilles dying and like, sorry, spoiler alert for people who don't know about the, yeah. how this war ends. <laughs> yeah. So the, the horse myth is in the Odyssey. That's what I thought, but it, it's gotta be somewhere else. Or do they just like fast forward and they're like, here's what happened in the Odyssey. Like, do they just sort of like do flashback style? <laughs> I haven't read well, the Odyssey yeah, the, yet, so the the time the the way the Odyssey is told is really interesting. We'll talk about that when we in the Odyssey episode. In the Odyssey episode, but they, they do reference it. I just don't remember exactly how it gets. Oh, the Aeneid. Okay, so we're gonna read that too. So I guess that's why we probably think it's true, since it shows up both in the Aeneid and in the Odyssey. Yeah, what's this deal? There's a theory you were talking about in our notes called the bicameral uh, mind, which I think is tied to this like whole gods idea and the emotions that people feel. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, yeah, I actually had not seen much of that, but I clicked on the links that you had in there. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. I you know I didn't go too deep on it. I'll just read part of the quote because it was so fascinating. Psychologist Julian Jaynes uses the Iliad as a major piece of evidence for his theory of the bicameral mind. He says that humans during that time were lacking for what today is called consciousness. He suggests that humans heard and obeyed commands from what they identified as gods until the change in human mentality that incorporated the motivating force into the conscious self. So that's kind of like what we were talking about with like these urges and feelings and not really knowing where they come from. But I guess it takes it yeah. a step further and it's like, they didn't even hear them as their own mind telling them to do something. They heard it as like, you know, Apollo telling me to do something or like, you know, Zeus telling me to do something. It's not attributed to the self. I, I thought it was super yeah. interesting. Uh, I mean, obviously there's no way to validate or invalidate it, but the thing that uh, mm. 
has surprised me most about reading the old books, the great books, is I just feel like the people in them are exactly the same. Like intuitively, I disagreed with this when I read it, that uh, these people would not be considered like to have consciousness and to be like, because it's basically suggesting they're closer to animals. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, although I, I mean, I don't know when that transition happened, but I guess it is an interesting question of, was it like a gradual change over time or was it like a binary moment where consciousness developed or do animals have the same type of consciousness that we do? And I like, I definitely feel like it's more of a spectrum probably than like a binary thing, but you're right. Yeah. It's like, I mean, if you base it off this argument, then that transition over to like more on the consciousness side happened much more recently then yeah yeah, because you're right because these people are all acting kind of very much how you would like you could you could have a modern day version of this story in like you know like a more recent war and you would believe it like the people act very similar is what i'm saying yeah yep uh one of the themes that i you know with a lot of the stuff we've read so far i've just been thinking about generally is there's this like almost an implied I think in the Iliad, it's more implied and in the religious text it's much more explicit, which is like, we are not like the animals, like in air quotes, we are not like the animals, you are not like Mm -hmm. the animals. And suppressing these urges like rage, wrath, vengeance, lust, like all these things is what differentiates you from the animals and gives you that value. But the reason I thought about it a bit beyond like it obviously appearing in the texts is it feels like there are certain things we do today where we're basically saying it's almost like a... I don't know if it's a slight reversion or it's a combination of the ideas where it feels like a part of modernity and you could call it maybe something nihilistic is uh, we are an animal and we do have these things, but you can still be modern and civil while retaining those qualities. And I find that to be very fascinating because it actually flies in the face of a lot of what you would call these morals. Like you have concepts of like righteous anger, right? Uh, You have, you know, justice as like a vow. Well, I think justice is a little different from vengeance, but you know, there is a line there on justice and vengeance. It's basically formalized uh, retribution. A few other examples that I'm not going to rattle off off the top of my head, but that was what that was what I found fascinating about this. That is actually, if you think about the book from that perspective, that is kind of another central theme: is like these urges, these sort of base emotions are like they're going to cause problems. Like, if you even think about the whole source of this conflict, Helen and uh, Paris, right? It's kind of lust. And then that led to this, like, epic war, you know, tragic war for both sides. And that was sort of caused by this base emotion of of lust. And then this whole problem of Achilles is also rage. You know, it's the problem of rage. That's kind of, that is kind of like a meta lesson in the, in the book. I, I didn't see that much discussion about this elsewhere, so I, I wonder if I just misunderstood what I read. But my interpretation of the beginning was that uh, the war was a setup uh, by Zeus to like punish Agamemnon, which I also thought was interesting where it's like, okay, so you've like behaved poorly and you've misplaced someone's trust. And now as a result, the gods will not only punish you, uh, they'll punish like thousands of people in an extremely gruesome way and just like intervene and trick you. Like send the false mm-hmm. dream that says you should go to war because you'll win while fully intending for you to go to war and lose. Uh, and then there's the part where Agamemnon realizes that Zeus has tricked him. And mm. he has, like, I think it's only a paragraph or two, but it's like, he's like, yeah, like I don't know what his plan was, but clearly his plan was not for me to win. It makes sense. I mean, the 
if we're this is kind of why I like the bicameral mind theory too is that that would explain why the gods seem maybe even worse than humans or they're like kind of bad versions of us because then it is this lesson about like be careful listening to these random impulsive voices in your head because they will lead you to bad things right so this so like in that that warning in the form of agamemnon and zeus is like oh you had this voice in your head telling you that you could just go and win and it'll be easy and you know maybe it was wrong to act on that that's actually a really good point yeah and it's so interesting way of thinking about it yeah yeah and it's so different from abrahamic religions which are like if you think about you know genesis or exodus where it's like you know, God told you to do something and that's like, you are following that. And by following that and trusting that you are led to good outcomes. Yep. It's kind of actually the opposite lesson <laughs> in this. Well, I almost, I, I am, I know nothing about uh, Greek mythology or religion. So if I'm way off the ranch here, you guys can just tell me to shut up and correct me. But uh, <laughs> it, it almost feels like not to build on your idea. The gods encapsulate these horrible traits bad traits. Uh, and they're also immortal because the traits are immortal. The traits go from person yeah. to person. There are these things that like bind everybody together. And much like a god, they like have power over you. So I think just the word gods, given our connotation, is just, it almost feels like the wrong word. Like I almost get like an existential, like a little bit of angst when I'm like, oh, like humans are better than the gods. They have to not be like them. I'm like, whoa, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe like, maybe right. like deities is a better, or like there's some other term for it. And we just like the translation that we use is gods, but they're probably like, I wonder if, yeah. cause like our, in the West, our idea of God is like a, this sort of being the supreme being, like, you know, encompasses everything that's good right it's like even hard for us to think of an evil god as like a thing because you're just like wait that doesn't make sense that would be the devil but it's like in their their version of these deities you know gods or whatever they're not they're not devils but they're also not angels and they're also not god in the way that we think about god so i wonder if that's just like a translation thing like maybe there's another word that a word that feels close is like idolizing a thing like you idolize money you can idolize like sex or appearance you know feels closer but it's not quite the same because an idol is i think by definition not really responsive Mm. or not necessarily it's also interesting the idea of praying like i wonder when they say pray like if that means what we think pray means because when they say like oh i pray to like this particular god or whatever it's like i wonder if that's almost more similar to the idea of like worshiping to your point like money or appearance or strength or like whatever and it's almost like meditating on that concept to like put yourself more in that mindset it's like it's like for example if you like only like let's say you're really getting hardcore into like working out and you like just start paying more attention to like workout videos and only following workout people on twitter and on instagram and stuff it's like that's almost like praying to working out it's like you're spending all you're essentially putting your attention on that um all of your attention on that I don't know if it's praying in the way that like a Muslim or a or a, a Christian would think about the idea of praying. It's conceptually similar though, right? Like occupies a core part is, of yeah. your mind. It's like a ritualistic thing. You take out your phone, you swipe through the uh there was a quote that I'd highlighted that kind of con- contradicts this, which is uh, I forget from where in the book it is, but 
the great goddess fiery-eyed Athena set him on. Doesn't the son of Tydeus know down deep, the man who fights the gods does not live long? So then it's, you got to control the urge. Or, level. Yeah, but then yeah. you can't beat the urge and uh, maybe we're, maybe we're just on our little, uh, made you think chair here. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, we always like these kinds of fun theories. Yeah. My notes are hilarious because I just would like write comments in as I was. Oh, sorry, Nat, I cut you off. I think you moved away from the mic. What were you saying? Oh, oh, I was, I was just saying that we we like these these fringier theories for a lot of these things. (laughs) My camera mind, aquatic apes, you know that that type of stuff. (laughs) Yep, (laughs) they're more entertaining. Exactly. Go ahead, Adil. Uh, I was just kind of bullshitting. I'm just looking through my (laughs) my highlights and. There's one right here. It's like, LOL drama. It's like a bunch of A's. And uh, there were so many parts of the book that were just so ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Zeus who marshals storm clouds lowered a dark glass, a uh, dark glance, and let loose at Ares. You. I hate you most of all the Olympian gods. And at one point, he called Mira a bitch. I was like, whoa. Like, like. <laughs> There were a couple times. There were a couple times. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah there was a lot of that and then also how she was like you know trying to uh to like get what she wanted she was like trying to seduce him and like distracting him with sex and like yeah she gets him gets him drunk and has sex with him to distract him while what is it while they're charging uh yeah so so that he he doesn't see (laughs) so funny (laughs) A, a thing that reminded me of the epic of gilgamesh that Confused me a little. Like in the Epic of Gilgamesh, they go to the forest, they kill the king, and it's like really cruel. But then there's like a redemption arc. Uh, Achilles has a bit of a redemption arc in this book. But then I don't know if you guys remember, like maybe a third of the way in, Odysseus kills the spy and just like yeah, basically promises that. him, like, if you tell us what you were doing, like, we yeah. won't hurt you. And then the second yep. the guy finishes telling him, just beheads him. And there was yep, no like yeah. redemption arc and there was no, it just like ended there. And it was a very odd, very odd part of the book. Cause Odysseus seemed like a more level headed, like admirable. Like the reasonable. Yeah. But immediately like the reasonable guy. word. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually really, so I, I made a comment uh, in the notes about how this actually reminded me of a lot of the, oh, a, very, a lot of similarities to the Mahabharata, which is like the Indian version of the Iliad. And I mean, very similarly told in the sense of like these gods who are imperfect are intervening, but it's like a human story. It's a war. And it's like kind of similar in the sense that they, I almost wonder if a deal if that scene was put in to make Odysseus not seem like this purely good guy and Mm -hmm. make him seem like more flawed because in the Mahabharata, that's like the same thing where like the good guys do a lot of bad things to win the war. And the bad guys actually, in a weird way, act more honorably than the good guys in many sections. Like, and mm-hmm. and Hector is kind of the version of that in in this story, right? Where like Hector is like, you know, he's on the the side that wronged the other one, but he actually is very honorable himself. Like, he didn't really act dishonorably, and he actually went into a situation uh, to retain his honor, right? Like, he was very courageous, I guess, um, even though he's on the bad side, you know, quote unquote bad side, but. Um, yeah, and I think I wonder if that scene was put in for Odysseus to not seem as like like almost to add this, yeah, this like ambiguous nature to his character. 
it would make him more, I mean, relatable or honest. It was sort of the way I think Jacob, we were discussing in the Genesis episode, how, uh, you know, he had his redemption arc, but then had stolen the birthright and um, all these things. Uh, the yeah. the point that you're making, though, about like Hector being honorable and honor in general, I thought was really interesting in the like the battles and the conflicts is that that scene earlier on where they're all just like fighting outside Ilium and Ajax challenges Hector to a duel. And then everybody like stops fighting and the two of them duke it out for a while, but it's sort of just like a tie. And then they like hug yeah, and go back to their respective sides, and everybody. I think everybody just like goes home after that. Yeah, <laughs> right? like it's the strangest thing. Okay, everybody was just trying to kill the shit out of each other, and then okay, these two guys are gonna duel, and then everyone's just gonna go home. Like, I, can you, I? It's just so hard to imagine, but it, it reminds me of uh, you know that story of like the the Christmas soccer match in World oh, yeah. War One. Yep, right. Where was that one or two? One I think it was one. I think it was one. Yeah, yeah. It's like there, there, there is this element of like, I guess, human respect or something that can still exist in those like really crazy situations, and it it just it seems a little wild that nobody would like run out and try to take a pot shot at. Hector or Ajax in the middle of that because I mean if you if you got one of them down that's it, a major advantage for your Win side for, but yeah I, I guess the the threat of dishonor was probably just so much greater than the like potential benefit of yeah. you know, skewering one of them. Well, Although uh, the Trojan War was won by deception, right at the end, true. The, with the uh, yeah horse. yeah again by Odysseus, you know yeah like and, and this is the interesting thing with like the Odyssey too is Odysseus is like not totally a hero he's like very anti-hero it's kind of like a you know like deadpool or something right where it's like okay he's he's the main character but he's also like kind of a dick and you're like not really sure if you like him or not in a lot of parts so and that that could be why that little nugget is in there of him killing the spy too yeah it's like oh okay odysseus might be just like fronting as this like very logical honorable guy but he's like eh, he's kind of shady you know yeah um also when i was the, go ahead yeah no go ahead go ahead uh no i was just gonna go back to the the, the ajax and um hector fight just yeah i go, go back that, to that scene was so interesting to me <laughs> yeah. it just felt so different from anything i would expect in a like life or death military conflict but it, there's this other thing that i've read in a few situations about like ancient military conflicts, how I guess a lot of them might have been resolved by these kinds of duels because neither side wanted to like lose life unnecessarily. And this happens a few times in Peloponnesian War too, but like the two armies will march up and meet each other. And then if one is like clearly much larger than the other, the other one will just be like, oh, okay, you guys win. Like, here, we'll, we'll, we'll be your slaves now. Um, and then they just, like, hope they get rescued by their side eventually. Like, they won't even fight. They'll just be like, ah, there's no point. Like, you, it's not worth you guys it. got yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then in other situations where it's more balanced, they just each pick one person to represent their side as their, like, ultimate fighter. 
they duke it out. They might not even kill each other. They'll just fight till one of them submits, and then the losing, the entire losing side will capitulate and say, "Okay, <laughs> like you guys win." It it's really crazy. Uh, but I guess <laughs> their thinking is like we all like let's say ninety nine percent of us survive in that scenario, rather than like yeah. all of us die because we're, almost, we're the worst army. It almost contradicts the undertone of like we're here for pride and glory. Yeah, a little bit, right? It's like, yeah, yeah we're we're mostly here for pride and glory, but eh, yeah. don't want to die. <laughs> yeah, but only pragmatic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, it could be that this, and you know, maybe that's part of why the Iliad stood out as a story is that it seems like a lot of conflicts were resolved in these much more boring ways, but the Iliad, most of the fighting is this like life or death, all against all, like you know, total war on the beach. Uh, you know, it's kind of why the um, Battle of Thermopylae is an interesting story too, right? Is like that, like it wasn't just Leonidas versus Xerxes and then, okay, like you won Xerxes, like go ahead. You know, they, they were actually like duking it out. So maybe that's part of why these stories last is like, these are the times when people really fought all out instead of settling it in like simpler ways. Yeah. And some of these scenes, that Ajax and uh, and Hector scene, I was picturing like I was like, if this was a movie, who would be playing Ajax? And I was like, The Rock, hands down. Yeah, <laughs> it would be The Rock. <laughs> yeah, he's supposed to be this like hulking, like massive. He's kind of like funny too. He's like taunting people all the time. Like, it would be he... The Rock, actually, or Jason Momoa. I feel like that's another one. Yeah, yeah, that would yeah. Be another one who could play Ajax. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, The Rock would be funnier, I think, than uh, yeah, than than uh, Jason Momoa. But they're both pretty funny. <laughs> when I think of Hector, I think of uh, Russell Crowe in Gladiator. Yeah, I was picturing that too. <laughs> you know, kind of like he's got like the nice beard and whatever. He's a little yep. more refined, but still yep. kind of a badass. <laughs> yeah, Odysseus could be like it would be some not like jacked guy, but like not. I don't know. It'd be, it would be like, it could be somebody like a Brad Pitt or is, something. Odysseus is like Loki, you know? He, he could oh, be played yeah. by, uh, <laughs> who plays Loki? J- What's that actor's name? Tom Hiddleston? Yeah. Oh, I could see that. Right? Like, that. That I think it's very similar energy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> this is like twice as funny for me because uh, my cousin just had a kid and they uh, named his son Odysseus. So oh. now I'm like, yeah, now I'm just imagining like little Odie grown up and reading these books to <laughs> figure out his namesake and it's like, listening Yo, Dad, to this is an asshole. What the fuck? <laughs> what a name, though. That That's is a cool, cool name. name. It's yeah. a really cool name. That's Someone should name their kid Ajax. That's a good name. That's a good name. Ajax yeah. also like a cleaning thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> But you can't be Ajax and not be jacked. Like you yeah, can't well, just be like a normal Windex. looking Ajax. Yeah. <laughs> Ajax dish shit. <laughs> well, and on the on the Ajax versus Hector thing, that that's part of why Achilles' battle with Hector stands out so much in the story is that because there's a few of these duels and they're always very honorable, very respectful, and then. Achilles and Hector duel and it's like anything but because I think Hector suggests that they stop at some point, right? And 
Achilles is basically like, no, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> and then kills him, ties him to his chariot, and just drags his body around in the mud for a while. And like in front for a while, of alien- like for like week for like a week <laughs> yeah for like weeks yeah. he like leaves him tied up and every time he gets bored he gets back on his chariot and goes yeah. drives in circles for a while it's like it's it's really fucked up <laughs> just because he wanted to like mutilate the body more but it wasn't mutilating oh, it wasn't really like, I missed that part yeah it, it was like it, being it protected getting... by the yeah it was being protected by the oh. gods or whatever and then because his father came remember to yeah yeah collect the body ends yeah but leading up to that like one of the people was telling his father that you know achilles is trying to mutilate the body but hasn't been able to and the body hasn't decayed at all over the past week yeah yeah i remember the not decaying and thinking that was interesting i missed the non-mutilation part that's cool i also love how priam just like sneaks into the camp yeah (laughs) like I don't know how that makes any sense in a historical context, right? Like, how does the king of the city get through the entire military camp, like, undetected? And then he and Achilles are just, like, hugging in the tent, crying, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's Priam. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think, like, war was just a very different thing. I mean, it's not like it wasn't brutal. Like, it seemed like the consequences yeah. were still massive. Like, if you lost, you know, your, uh, everybody becomes a slave. Like, it's it's really bad consequences. But it seemed like there were just, like, rules to war. And yeah. everybody was just on the same page of them for some reason. I mean, I, it's a very interesting sense of, like, when you look at that versus... I don't know, like a World War II or something or any war since then where it's just like, you know, do whatever you have to to win. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, like, you know, if, if, if Hirohito or like Hitler went into London and like had dinner with Winston Churchill or something in the middle of the war, like, would they just let them go home? Like, I. <laughs> maybe maybe not would they they probably wouldn't even go in the first place right like yeah in like a total I, war I wonder, like that yeah, yeah. In a total war. can you imagine something like that happening hey not or like right now like you <clears> know <throat> if putin came to dc or something to like yeah have yeah dinner with joe biden like i don't know maybe putin with the nukes they would have some more leverage but like a world war ii scenario i don't know yeah i don't know what the answer it's to that hard to be. imagine that sort of like sit down happening yeah maybe though. yeah it just feels like also like civilians are fair game whereas in the this uh this book like there was no real talk yeah, that, of like, maybe that's the difference yeah. yeah is there there really wasn't like a total war eh, actually no there totally was i mean you, people would invade cities and then just kill all the men yeah like yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. it was might yeah, have been for worse sure. back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think they're both. I think that's probably the same. It's just we have more tools to do it now. Yeah, like yeah, Can because we have bombs and stuff. Yeah, missiles. Well, no, no, no it's just collateral damage, Neil. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> a deal shaking his head. <laughs> There's always a worse thing we say in the episode. And- it's usually me. <laughs> <laughs> Have we gotten there yet? Have we gotten to the worst thing we said in the episode? Uh, I've got at least 25 more minutes to say something worse. <laughs> yeah. got time. Achilles um, being super emotional was 
also interesting. Like, no. yeah, the, the Patroclus debate, I I thought was interesting. I was like just reading a little bit about that afterwards, right? Like the the dynamics of male relationships, as depicted, especially here, like very interesting. Where just like the the extent of his emotional distraught over Patroclus and the way that their relationship is described sometimes like there there is this kind of like okay was there like a you know, like somewhat romantic relationship there of some sort was this just like what relationships amongst military comrades were like back in the day you know it's not you know you I, I feel like the stereotype would be to imagine this very like stoic hardened you know gristled Achilles who is like angry about the loss of his friend but isn't distraught over it and it's basically like a whole page describing him like rolling on the ground crying and sobbing and pulling his hair out about how sad he is when Patroclus dies like it's not what you expect yeah yeah they, that was um, speculated that go ahead no I was I was saying there is speculated that he that I mean there's a debate basically that's been going on for apparently since like classical times. I'm um, looking at it right now of if this was a homosexual relationship or not. And I think it's like also tied to how it's worded in, in Greek, like the term that they use. I'm just looking on the Wikipedia page where it's like, there's a word that's used for that's often translated as brotherly love. There's a word that's used that's translated as like soldiers under the same command so that's like one view and then apparently like plato even portrayed it as a same-sex love yeah i wonder at that point is it just the bias of the translator just choosing could be yeah uh, could be yeah so that there's also this thing in in ancient greece called pederasty which was a a common romantic relationship between an older male, usually like a some sort of elite, and a younger male, usually in his teens. And it was, I guess, it was considered kind of like an initiation ritual, like part of how you enter into military and political life. But it, it sounds like that type of relationship was like fairly common as a like cultural institution. So even if it wasn't a like romantic, you know, a very romantic relationship like we would imagine today, it could have still been a like like this other kind. Of, it, it's interesting. I mean, we don't really have a good analogy for this today, I don't think, because it, it seems like it's half affectionate, half like I don't even know what word to use. It's like it. I'm just reading the Wikipedia page on it right now. Like, it's kind of interesting, and we'll we'll link it in the show notes. It almost seems like it's just sort of how you like pay your dues to get into these circles. Like, you've got to sleep with an older guy for a while if you want to get initiated into like the higher ranks of the military or political life. Um, Is it considered like? That it was a. Uh, it seems like it's considered like a consensual thing. Okay, so you know, it's not, not like necessarily a, an abusive thing. No, no, it doesn't hmm. seem that way anyway. I I can only skim so quickly. But. So it's almost like a weird like mentor type relationship. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, yeah. It's like yeah, you you get a mentor and you pay him back with sex. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. 
Is there, I don't know if that's what's so being implied here, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right though, Adil. I think it has something to do with the author because in I'll put this in our chat, like on the Wikipedia page, it talks about how different authors talk about the relationship, like under this classical views and antiquity uh section. And like they'll have like in one of the things in the under the first author, it says in a surviving fragment of the play. Achilles speaks of the reverent company of Patroclus thighs and how he was ungrateful for his many kisses. Hmm. But that's the author. That's not Homer. That's the author of like another play building on stuff from the Iliad. But then other authors didn't play it the same way. So it's just like, I think you might be right that a lot of it's just open to interpretation and it's up to the author of how they, they took it or the translator. I read a a version of the Quran last year where it was only like, the first like quarter of the Quran or so, but the guy was talking, the author's talking a lot about how, when you uh, translate into English, just so much of the like meanings and like artistry and like the double meanings in Arabic are lost, sort of like what you might be suggesting here for this passage from Greek to English. And what the author did was for the passages where that might be the case, he would just put like one, two or three translations side by side and say, Mm, okay, cool. no one of these is capable of fully capturing the original, but if you read all three of them, then you'll get the full Arabic meaning. And I really, really like that. So there are some sentences you were just reading three times, but then you would be like, okay, way clearer now. Uh, I just wonder That's if this a is a great way to similar. do it. Yeah. I kind of wish I, uh, it'd be interesting to find a, a Hebrew Bible translation that does that because I am sure you guys felt this too. It's like, Maybe it's something about Hebrew or something about the way the Old Testament is written or whatever, but the the translation feels so much rougher hmm. than a translation of like the Iliad and the Odyssey mm, uh, or yeah. like anything else from ancient Greek. And maybe it's just that like Greek and English are a little bit closer together of languages, or maybe it's that the Hebrew is very like poetic and you know, it has a lot of like stylistic flair in the natural language, but when you translate it to English, that comes out as kind of like stilted and confusing, right? Mm-hmm. Like even Gilgamesh, I, I found much more readable than some parts of the Old Testament, and so it'd be interesting to see a few different ways of translating it so that you could get like that fuller picture. Neil and I were discussing not exactly this, but something similar. Uh, on Genesis, which was the language being very plain. And we were speculating that it may have been deliberate because then when you're discussing it, it doesn't do the interpretation for you. So it doesn't tell you how a character necessarily feels or whether the thing they did is like objectively good or bad Mm. and gives that space for, especially if it's oral tradition, uh, then you can like tell part of the story and then maybe the group participates, right? Uh, Especially since it's being told, you know, around the campfire over the course of several nights and so on. Yeah. It's like the, I think the reason that stoicism is so popular as a philosophy is that it, there's like zero obscurity to it. It's basically nothing that's up for interpretation. It's just like extremely straightforward, tells you exactly how things are supposed to be or whatever. Right. There's like no debate about it. Uh, so it's really easy and really readable. And then on the opposite end, you have something like, you know, the old Testament or when we read like, Foucault, right? And some of these things are just like there's so much more room to try to like figure out what's going on or interpret it in your own way. 
that makes it more of an active process. Right? I wonder if that's why stoicism is so popular in tech. It's basically just code for people. It's like, you know, like the peanut butter jelly uh, <laughs> exercise. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. It's like funny. I was, I was going through my old like Aristotle ethics notes and I think it's like objectively way better than the stoic stuff, but it's like 10 times harder to read and much more obscure. So it, it doesn't have that like easy snack size, like very aphoristic quality that a Seneca or a Marcus Aurelius has. And like, I, I think this is why Taleb does very well too, is he's so like aphoristic. Like if you're, if your ideas can easily fit into a tweet, they're going to do well now. Uh, not if it needs like, you know, 15,000 long <laughs> explanation <Yeah>. exposition. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, actually, Nat, you, I think you've written about this, but it, I don't know if we've ever talked about it on the podcast, but it's like, it's interesting to think about the evolution of our ideas over the last like six or seven years where I feel like there was a time where we were like very into stoicism and like just a lot of those themes. And then it's like, we've kind of, I don't want to say move beyond it, but it's like, we're not as zoomed into that anymore. Yeah. It's like, I can sort of see where there is value but I'm not like fully bought into it the way that I might have been a few years ago. I'm, I'm blocked it, by Taleb now. So yeah, I you're out of his Taleb. stuff anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he even blocked you from his books. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just get rerouted from my house. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but it, it's just like, it's interesting that like, I wonder, can you get to like, do you almost have to go through that part of the journey? Right. Yeah, like somebody yeah. who's like just starting out now, like, can they, like they almost do they have to dive all into something like that and then they can see you know sort of zoom out later um, yeah i, mean, I almost I, think you have to i, almost I think, think you, you have do to. yeah well, I, I, what is it I thought about what did you say i just said i, th- I think you have to I, I yeah like, i think you have yeah. to yeah i mean I, I i thought about this a lot with reading where it's like oh why did i waste all those years reading shitty business and pop psych books but that laid a very strong foundation for reading as a valuable enriching activity and then once you kind of like exhaust the value you're getting from one category i think then you can move up to a like higher more meta category and to some extent like skipping straight to some of these books like the ones that we're trying to do now like if i, I think if i'd tried to skip to Peloponnesian War or something and gotten value out of it six years ago, it like I wouldn't have gotten anything from it because I wouldn't like I I, I just wouldn't appreciate like the the meta-ness or whatever because I wanted more tactical stuff at the time. Or you know, it's it's kind of like when you're collecting disparate information but you don't have a like trunk of knowledge to attach it to, it's very hard to hold on to it. It just kind of like gets lost. It's like reading entrepreneurship books before you started a business, right? Like yeah. You you have no idea what to do with the information, and then you know maybe later it's helpful. So I I feel like going through like starting with the easier stuff and then transitioning to harder stuff is almost better, right? Like so I you know I read Odyssey in college or whatnot, and I like didn't get anything from it. <laughs> I enjoyed it way more now Same. than I did back then. Yeah, it's sort of like I don't know, right book, right time, or right difficulty level, right time. I don't know. There there's something to that. Nat, you said a specific phrasing there that I liked where it was like, you don't have enough knowledge to attach the other knowledge to. Uh, yeah. And I think for the philosophy and religion books, it's like you need enough experience to attach the new knowledge to. 
and I think it was in Rome. I, I really don't remember, but there was some, one of the ancient societies where you actually weren't allowed to like study philosophy until you had yeah. reached a certain age. You had to be like 35 or 40 or something. <laughs> yeah. Which I totally yeah, get. Like, I think, I think yeah. about myself and my experience now and it's like, I haven't suffered. I'm very grateful, but I haven't suffered much loss. I haven't had a kid. Like there are these things that I just like, haven't gone through. Like that I are huge swaths of experience that I can't attach anything to. And I'm, th- basically 30. So it's like you would need at least another five, 10 years to at least run the full gamut of that experience. Yeah. I I think that's really true. I wonder if it's less about age and more about like life events and experience, right? Like I would imagine people who, I mean, there's people who have kids at, you know, 20, 21, whatever. Like, I wonder if that plays a big role too, or or experience different things at different ages. Like it's, it's probably more of an events thing. Oh, totally. A, yeah. Um, I mean, Nat's the only one who has a kid on this call, but like, I'm sure that's changed how you think about like some things in your life. I'm sure that's impacted it quite a bit. Totally. Yeah. I, it's definitely a, uh, yeah, it's hard to know what it is exactly because it's like you also know a lot of people with kids who are still just like idiots, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't personally, but you, you know, you, everybody's had this experience of meeting somebody. And then finding out they have kids and being like, oh, God, why? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. But And then you've got you have people who, I don't know, do, can you have somebody who's just like sat in their house and read books for like 15 years, but has had no life experience and is like really thoughtful about things? I don't know. I don't um, think I would trust what they say. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of like... Uh, <clears throat> It's, like most people who have like written really great things like fiction or nonfiction, it's like tied to some interesting life experience in some way, right? It's like, Oh, Hemingway was this incredible fiction writer. And it's like, yeah. And he was also this like insane alcoholic, like war veteran running around Paris, right? Like he was creating right. those stories that he was writing about. I'm trying to think maybe a, like uh like a Will Durant, you know, like pure academic, just like mastered history and created really incredible stories out of but it. But maybe that's only possible for history because it already kind of happened rather yeah, than true. anything like forward looking. Yeah. Because it's that. like, you're just telling a story of other things that happened. Um, whereas even if you're writing like a fiction story, you're, you have to come up with what that story is. So probably right, like right. life. Yeah. Like life events are probably, you know, very relevant to that. I mean, there are very imaginative people, obviously, who, you know, go outside of this. But yeah, I think it's probably... T- I mean, otherwise, you're kind of like, uh, going back to Taleb, it's kind of like the IYI concept of like... Yeah, somebody, yeah, empty suit, right? Yeah, especially if it's a nonfiction thing. Like, if it's not tethered to real life, you're just kind of... Fiction, I know, too. I mean, the reason up. Infinite Jest is so good is that it's like at least half autobiographical. Yeah, that's so true. Like, he was basically yeah. psychotic himself. And yeah, that's true. That's a great point. Yeah. Even though that is a fiction book, it's it feels so real because of that. Yeah, you, you read some of those chapters and you're just like, oh, this this isn't fiction anymore. <laughs> this is this is you. <laughs> like that, that one at the beginning where uh, is it I think it's Gately is like waiting for somebody to deliver weed. Remember that chapter, Neil? And it's like yep. freaking out by the telephone, like yep. waiting, 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 waiting for the drug dealer to call. <laughs> it's like other uh, you've that, absolutely experienced ex- that. Yeah, you've definitely yeah. experienced this. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I think that's uh, that's definitely true. There is yeah. one category of though where the isolation actually leads to the increase of trust, and that's like anyone who has like a monastic life or anything in mm-hmm. that category, which is interesting because you would almost you almost want those people to have the most experience, but I guess they witness so much of the other people they interact with that the isolation lets them digest it. I don't know, but that's like a recurring theme in every culture, no matter the religion, those who lead sort of a monastic life, like a life of contemplation as usually the way I hear it. uh, They're very trusted. I wonder if, you know, kind of going back to touching on this bicameral mind idea, a monastic person would have spent the most time interfacing with those like voices in the head. Right. So in some way, as you would trust somebody who has spent the most time at war to lead your military efforts, you would trust the person who has spent the most time communicating only with those other, you know, forces in your head as the person to like interpret the meaning of those voices. Right. That's kind of an interesting way to frame it, but it makes sense intuitively. Right. It's like the shaman goes out into the forest and works with the plants and communes with the plants. And so you trust them in those matters yeah yeah so they have the experience they can help you interpret the dreams and such if you don't have your your young book handy i think we about covered everything right yeah do we have anything else we want to toss in the last couple minutes here what are other good things you guys have read where the good guys versus bad guys is just not like super clear. Like I think of a few, like East of Eden is where people get a little murky. Like most yeah. good books, that's usually the, that's one of the most common themes across them. Uh, the unbearable yeah. lightness of being the main character is just outright bad, but like somehow occasionally relatable enough to get through the book. Yeah. I mean, even like movies, you would say like, I mean, you could see like the Godfather, Godfather two is kind of like that too. I mean, objectively, he does a lot of Michael Corleone does a lot of bad things, but you also can like put yourself in his shoes and be like, okay, yeah, he's doing this to like preserve this organization that his father built essentially, mm. and he was like a war hero before getting into all of this. But in order to preserve the organization, he had to do you know worse things than what his dad did. So it's kind of like an anti anti hero because you can. I think like the anti-hero theme is kind of you understand the motivations, even if objectively these are like really shitty actions. Yeah, yeah. But I think the best I'll, ones are even more subtle than anti-hero. Because anti-hero yeah. is like, okay, I recognize they're bad, but these are like, they're not really bad or good. Yes, that's everything. a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say uh, Three Body Problem does a really good job of starting out seeming like a Disney good guy versus bad guys. And then really once you get into the second book, you realize that it's like way more emotionally and motivationally complex than that and there like are no good guys including us and then it kind of maintains that energy through the rest of the, like second and third book so that would that would probably be a good example of what you're talking about a deal i need to read those books they've just oh, been on my shelf yeah i know same I've, you've been recommending them for like literally years <laughs> so good oh man yeah yeah i need to add that oh. uh, someday What's our next book? Do we know what our next book is? Is it the Odyssey? Odyssey. Yeah. Odyssey. Odyssey. Okay. Yep. And then yeah, we're I'll going say, back to the Bible or what's the what's the order? Yeah, we could do Odyssey and then do Deuteronomy maybe. Cool. 
There's a couple of ones that I'm like, like we could definitely do Tao Te Ching and Confucius, and they'd be those would be interesting ones to do because there is so little to talk about in terms of like word count, but that could actually they could end up being like the longest episodes just because we could take like two of the I'm not sure what they're called exactly. They're not chapters, they're verses or pages, I guess, of Tao Te Ching. And like you could probably do a whole episode just on, you know, one of those. Uh the Analex is kind of that way too. Um Pel- Peloponnesian War will be a really fun one when we get there too, because like the the speeches in that are also like the best part, even more than the history elements. So good list. I do everything okay. Covering your mouth. Yeah, you're like you're like kind of smiling and laughing. What was oh funny? no, no, no! I I wasn't laughing at anything. I was just like thinking through my head. I was like, the speeches are so powerful that you can read them so much later, and they're still like so good to read. Like I, yeah, there's so many books where we've been like, yeah, this like Atlas Shrugged is basically mostly the value is for the speeches or the movie Darkest Hour is like you know, a six out of 10 movie. And then it has 15 minutes of Churchill speeches, which make it like a 9.5 out of 10 movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, that's, I was just like covering my mouth quietly admiring, you know, it's all positive. <laughs> <Speeches. don't worry>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wasn't sure if like the book list, there was like something on that book list, which no, 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 funny. I will. I will say, I, I will recommend starting Peloponnesian war early. It like <laughs> it, it drags. It definitely drags apart. So that one took me a long time. But yeah, okay. And it's like six hundred cool. pages too. It's kind of long. So what was what was the Iliad actually? I don't even know how many pages it was. It, I just Iliad's know it was like four hundred, I think. Yeah, but so it's even longer. Well, but Iliad's like four hundred of like verse. You right. know, it's it's not really four hundred. Like the pages right. are smaller and everything. That's true. Yeah. Like Peloponnesian is like 600 pages, you know, it's like, I think almost 200,000 words. So it's, it's, it's a big boy. Yeah. Publisher didn't yeah, stop. This is like an actual but book. But <sighs> it's like pretty badass. I mean, it's literally the first history book, you know, and the guy spent 40 years of his life writing it wow. and he fought in the war and then he just didn't finish it. <laughs> It it literally just ends in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> and he didn't die or anything. Like he just, he just got bored. <laughs> he just stopped. What? He's the George R. R. Martin of his day, like not yeah. finishing the series. It's like, yeah, this is good enough. <laughs> like they didn't lose the next page, he just stopped. No, he just stopped. <laughs> That's like a real power move. He was like, yeah, I'm inventing the category, but I don't care to finish the book. It's not a good category. Yeah. We're done with history books. <laughs> like, yeah. He's also he's a, he's a character in the book, so he's like <laughs> describing stuff about him in the third person, right? Like, and then Thucydides like brought <laughs> enough money to pay for an additional contingent. <laughs> it's like, oh, look at you. <laughs> I wonder if he had some kind of like patron though or sponsor uh, that person Maybe. Like, was like, yeah, this is getting too long and it's not <laughs> cutting you off. We're, yeah. we're running out of scrolls. Well, it's like the Count of Monte Cristo, which I love and Dylan originally recommended to me was written. Like the reason it's so long is because he was getting paid by like chapter that he did <laughs> for the newspaper. <laughs> 
and it was being published in a newspaper. So there was like every chapter. He just like keep adding chapters to make the story longer and longer. He's like, this is a great contract. I just have to keep delivering chapters. (laughs) (sighs) All right. I got to run. All right. Got to be some more Yep. Thank you for listening. Great great episode, guys. Yep. Leave a review. Tell people. Post about it. Um, Thank you to everyone who helped us get over 400,000 listens. So that's exciting. And yeah, let us know what you thought on Twitter. Probably the easiest place. Um, definitely send Nat some messages because I don't think I think a deal with <laughs> no, I, 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 people more than him. I, I closed my DMs because I'm not on Twitter anymore. I don't. Want so don't let him know. Yeah, don't you can email me. Yeah, I, I put my email in my Twitter bio. I was just like, yeah, just email wow. Nat Eliason at Gmail if you like have questions or and like no emails. I mean, it, everybody's like, oh, I don't want my email to get out. Nobody's going to email you. Like it's. <laughs> I've I've been amazed that it's just driven almost no inbound. So that's my solution. Just close my DMs, not take messages anywhere else. Just email. Yeah. Yeah. You added a point of friction. So it's like if they really want to contact you, they can. But there's it's true. Yeah. It's not as easy as just hit the DM button. People, people will think about an email. Yeah. Twitter DMs, they'll just send, you know, random deranged shit. So. <laughs> I have so much respect for the email and the bio. There's just something so like retro about it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, let's see what happens. You know, if I start getting like 50 emails a day, I'll take it down. But uh, literally zero in like the two weeks I've had it in there. But see, it it has that effect of deal. People look at it and they're like, whoa, like this is a power move. (laughs) Like. Little do they know, nobody gives a fuck. <laughs> so tweet at me and Neil and then spam that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sign them up you have for to send a, me a letter, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you have to find the address, send them a letter. It has to be yeah, hand delivered. Yeah. <laughs> Carrier pigeon. Carrier pigeon. There you go. All right. I got to run, guys. All right. See you Good guys show. next time. Peace.